So would you please rise in honor of this reading, God's holy and inerrant word, starting with Psalm 39, verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Go to Psalm 90, verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we pray that now, as, a, as the word was just read, that the Holy Spirit will come and will teach us, bringing illumination to the truths of your scriptures, that we might humbly listen and learn, and that our lives may be shaped by your truth. We pray this for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I helped kickstart a sermon series that we are calling The Goodness of Givenness. It's a series aimed at addressing a dominant cultural narrative that's found in all of our sources of news and entertainment. We're talking about the modern idea of the sovereign self. That's the idea that we have within ourselves not just the ability to discover truth about reality, but the authority to create our own truth, to design our own reality. Now, last Sunday, we considered how this idea of the sovereign self can be applied to the contemporary issue of gender identity. The contemporary discussions about transgenderism are really rooted in this philosophical assumption that my given gender, as revealed biologically through my body, has no authority to define my reality, to define my identity. Transgenderism, as we argued, only makes sense in a framework where the sole authority to define reality lies within my mind, how I think about myself, or you could say in my heart, how I feel about myself. The whole point is that the inner self is sovereign and has the authority to reject external authorities, whether that's natural law, a religious text, or just the evidence of my own physical body. 
So when we speak of the goodness of givenness, what we're trying to do is to recover a biblical view of human nature, of the human body in particular. So instead of seeing our identities as these blank canvases and seeing ourselves as artists who are trying to create something brand new, Scripture says that we are actually not the artist. God is. And we are his workmanship. We are existing works of art. Now, of course, sadly, we've been defaced. We've been marred by the effects of sin. And so our job is to function, as we argued last week, as art restorationists, working to recover and to to restore the truth and the beauty and the goodness of our given nature and our given bodies. So last week, we considered the goodness of our given gender. Next week, we're going to consider the goodness of our given ethnicity and heritage. And we're going to close off the series in a couple of weeks looking at the goodness of our given stories, recognizing that just as we are not artists working with a blank canvas, in the same way we are not authors working with a blank book, writing our own stories. No, there is only one divine author of, our, of the story of our lives, and our job is to know him and to know his plot line and to faithfully live out our part in his story. So the whole point, of course, is that these given realities are not to be rebelled against. Instead, they are to be embraced. They are to be recognized and appreciated. Now, friends, this morning we're going to consider the givenness of our mortality. The givenness of our mortality. The fact that each of us are destined to die. No matter how convinced we are that we're sovereign selves with this authority to define our own reality, the stubborn and unbending truth of our givenness is that our bodies will age. They will decline, and eventually they will die and become dust. Of course, we can try our best to ignore this reality. We can, we can try to deny it, but we can't change it. We can't stop the inevitable. But what if? What if we didn't have to resist our mortality? What if we can just face it honestly? What if we listen to what our aging bodies are actually trying to tell us? What if we learn to number our days and to live in light of these given realities? Well, friends, that's what we're here to talk about this morning. Now, like I said last week, in this particular series, we're not going to be walking through a single, a single text like we normally do in this service. What we're going to do is to look at a few texts that are dealing with this topic of our given mortality. Mainly, we're going to be in Psalm uh, 39 and Psalm 90. And if you want to follow along, there's three biblical truths that we want to consider. And if you want to look in your bulletin, there's an outline listing those three truths. First... We want to consider how our mortality is undeniable. Second, our mortality is unnatural. And third, our mortality is a teacher. So let's begin by considering how our mortality is undeniable. No matter how hard we try, and oh boy, do we try, we can't escape this fact. We will one day die. 
Now, I know it's not considered nice and proper to be talking about these things in public. You know, we don't talk about mortality. We don't talk about death. That makes people feel squeamish. That makes people feel uncomfortable. So we'd rather turn to all of our devices or turn to our various forms of entertainment, of media, in order to distract us from dwelling on this reality, the reality of death. And we rely on, of course, technologies to reverse the signs of our mortality, to either slow down or to mask the aging process. We have pretty much lost any sense of death awareness and have instead created a culture of death denial. Now, there are reasons for why this is so. On one hand, we don't talk about death because it's not as prevalent as compared to ages past. Now, thank God that we live in a day and age where mortality rates have significantly plummeted and lifespans have significantly increased. We should be grateful for modern sanitation and modern plumbing. We should thank God for modern medicine, for vaccines and antibiotics and modern surgery. You know, things that would have certainly killed us a hundred years ago can now be treated with a prescription or a procedure. In past generations, if your children caught a fever, you, you wouldn't be annoyed that they might have to miss school. You would be afraid that they might not survive. And if you uh, were to get pregnant, and on top of worrying about how you're going to care for your newborn, you also have to worry about whether or not you're going to survive childbirth. That was a fact of life. And so before we talk about the good old days, you know, returning to those days when things were simpler back then, just remember, that also means simpler developments in med and medical technology and science. So I think we should be thankful for the times we live in. I think we should be thankful for all the advancements that we do enjoy. But the lack of death awareness among us is best explained not by advances in modern medicine and technology, but by changes in our culture. First off, in our society, we rarely come in contact with the dying or the dead. Unless, of course, you work in a hospice, or you work in an ICU, or a funeral home, or maybe you serve in law enforcement, or you're in the military, you probably have rarely seen a dead body. If ever, it was likely at a funeral, lying there in a casket, sensitively prepared for public viewing. But in previous centuries, death would have happened where life happens, in the home. Death would have been in your home, visible in front of you. But of course, now our loved ones typically take their last breath in a nursing home or in the ICU, isolated from most everyone. I know many parents wrestle with the decisions of whether or not they should bring their small children into the hospital room to see grandpa or grandma in their frail, weakened state at death's door. You know, we're not sure if we want our kids to see that. We don't want to give them nightmares. But by shielding them from death, could it be that we're giving them a false impression of our mortality? The psalmist, well, the psalmist, as we see, takes a very different approach in Psalm 39. He prays 
for God to keep him mindful of his mortality. He asks God to help him to remember his death. Listen to Psalm 39, verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end. Make me know my death and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. You see, the psalmist doesn't want to forget about his death. He wants to remember it. The last time I was in Boston with my family, we walked the Freedom Trail. You guys have probably done that before if you've, if you've visited Boston, you know, visiting all those historical sites, which, you know, includes a number of churches and a number of graveyards where a lot of our founding fathers are buried. I mean, just think about that setup of having a graveyard next to your church, which, of course, doesn't happen today in our modern buildings, but you go to those historic churches, and that's very common. I mean, just think about how sobering it must have been to go to church every Sunday, having to walk past or to even walk through a graveyard where your own relatives and friends and neighbors are buried six feet under. I mean, just think of the signal that must have sent and the reminder it must have been every single Lord's Day. And I'm just fascinated whenever I visit these old, uh, old burying grounds and examining the gravestones that they have. I mean, the Puritan gravestones, the Puritan graveyards, they're the best because they've got these gravestones with these engraved skulls on them that have like these angel wings or, or, or these crossbones. And sometimes they're going to have a Latin phrase carved into the gravestone, the phrase, memento mori. Memento mori, remember death. It's trying to tell everyone who's looking at this gravestone, remember, this is going to be you. So next time, Instead of just walking or driving quickly past the graveyard, maybe you should slow down and actually take a look. And remember that you will be there one day and not standing on your own two feet. Remember death. Now, I know, I know it's uncomfortable and it's kind of strange for me to say that. Those words seem odd, but that just goes to show how good we are at denying the reality of death. We market products to slow down the effects of aging, to mask it. We offer elective surgeries to help keep us looking young. We pointlessly try to pluck out gray hairs or to diet. And we change our language to come up with euphemisms for death. She passed away. He departed. She lost her battle. He kicked the bucket. We are hesitant to actually say, so-and-so died. She's dead. We have effectively airbrushed out the reality of death in our lives. But to what end? We haven't made a dent in changing the eventual outcome. We may not talk about or, or think about death as much as compared to past generations, but death is just as inevitable today as it was back then. Nothing has changed about that. We are still dust, and to dust we shall still return. There's evidence of this reality all around us. Listen to author Bill Bryson and how he puts it, quote, 
we shed skin cells copiously, almost carelessly, some 25,000 flakes a minute, over a million pieces of skin cells every hour. Run a finger along a dusty shelf and you are in large part cleaning a path through fragments of your former self. Silently and remorselessly, we are turning to dust. Friends, the evidence of your mortality is literally all around you. You can try not to think about it, but that doesn't change the reality. You are mortal, and you will one day die. Now look, I understand. If you're going to die one day and there's nothing you can do about it, well, then I can see how, from a therapeutic perspective, you'd be much happier for the remainder of your days not to think about the inevitable. I mean, why would you ruin the short time you have here by fixating on the fact that it's going to be over soon? Okay, sure, that, that makes sense. I, I can see why people want to deny death and don't want to talk about it. But what if there is a way to not stay dead? What if there is hope beyond the grave? If that were so, then facing your mortality, talking about death would actually be good things. It would be a helpful activity because now you're going to have to think about the very nature of death and its future. Death's fate. Because scripture says that death will one day die. Death may be inevitable, but it is not immortal. Death will die. One day it will be no more. Friends, that is why we need to talk about our mortality. Because otherwise, if we don't focus on this and we don't talk about this, we'll just assume that death is normal. But when we actually talk about it, when we look at it in light of Scripture, we realize that death is not part of the natural order of things. Which leads us to our second biblical truth. Our mortality is unnatural. It is this way, we can't deny it, but it shouldn't be this way. This is an important point to make here because when we speak in this whole series about the goodness of givenness, we are not saying that our mortality in itself is an intrinsic good. We learned from our previous study of Genesis as we went through Genesis 1 to 11, especially in the first two chapters, that we learned that death was not part of God's good design for our bodies. It wasn't until the third chapter of Genesis when sin entered creation did death follow. So now in our world, in this Genesis 3 world we're living in, of course it's easy for us to see death as natural, as part of the natural order of things. You know, the whole circle of life, that's just how it is. True, but that's not how it was. In the beginning, the Lord created Adam and Eve with bodies that would not die. And he warned them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest they die. Well, sadly, they, they didn't listen. They turned from God and they ate, and sin entered creation. And, of course, death soon followed. Now, after Adam and Eve sinned, we pointed out before how they didn't just immediately drop dead. But something did fundamentally change about them. Their bodies became mortal. They were now subject to decay, susceptible to disease, and sentenced to die. 
Death may not have been immediate, but it became inevitable for them and for all of mankind. But the point I'm trying to make here is that death is not natural. Death is a foreign intruder. Death is an enemy, according to Scripture. It was not part of God's good design. It entered through sin, and that's affirmed for us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Let me read Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So death, as we see, is the consequence of our sin, of our rebellion, of our turning away from God. It is the result of sin's curse on creation. And that is exactly what the psalmist recognized in Psalm 90. Turn with me in Psalm 90 again, as we had read it earlier. Let me read to you, starting from verse 7. Psalm 90, verse 7. For we are brought to an end. That is referring to our death. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities, our sins before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. So friends, right there, you see, Psalm 90 acknowledges that death is not a natural fact of life. It's snuck in through sin. Death is the wage of sin. It is a result of God's holy anger set against human sinfulness. Now, why is it so important for us to emphasize this? Why do you need to understand this? Well, first of all, if our mortality is unnatural, if death is not supposed to be the way, it's not supposed to be our end, then that affirms the rightness of your grief that you feel when your loved ones die. There is nothing natural about seeing your loved one lying there in a casket. There is nothing natural about that. What you would think is natural is for them to sit up and to start moving again. That's what you're expecting when you see a body. When you see a dead body, everything about it just feels wrong. And you are right to feel that way. Your grief is justified because it wasn't meant to be this way. Death is the most unnatural part of life. But that just leads to the second reason why it's important to understand this. If death is not part of the natural order of things, if it is a result of God's holy wrath against our sin, then at least there's hope that God has an answer to the whole problem of our mortality, that he has a plan to satisfy this holy wrath of his. And of course, that, my friends, is the good news of Christianity. The gospel, the Christian good news, says that God sent his beloved son to be the propitiation for our sins. What that means is that Jesus came to serve as an anger-averting 
wrath-satisfying sacrifice by dying in our place on the cross. And all who trust in Christ are assured that their sins have been forgiven and God's wrath against them has been assuaged. If you are in Christ, God is not angry with you. He has no wrath towards you. But it's important to note that the gospel doesn't promise that therefore believers will now never die. No, Christians still die. As we said earlier, that's undeniable. But the gospel does promise that just like Christ, Christians won't stay dead. That our hope is in first a spiritual resurrection that happens at our conversion, but also for a bodily resurrection that happens at the end of this age. That's the Christian's hope. So friends, if you don't share in the hope of the resurrection, if you don't share in the conviction that though you die, you won't stay dead, then of course I can see why you'll do whatever it takes to distract yourself from contemplating your mortality. I can see why you would throw yourself into your work or throw yourself into your studies or all your hobbies or just mindless entertainment. Why would you want to remember death? Why would you want to think about how everything you know and everyone you love is just going to all come, everything is just going to come to a crashing halt? But what if it's true? What if it's true that Jesus really did defeat death by his own death? He didn't extinguish death, not yet, but he did master death. And he turned it into his servant. Death, my friends, now serves as an usher, leading Jesus' people, leading Christians to glory. Death has become a servant. The poet George Herbert said it best. He said it this way, quote, Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. In other words, Christians aren't buried they're planted. Death is not an executioner for those who are in Christ. He's a gardener. I know that's a very different view of death compared to what's found in our culture today. But of course, that's the power of the gospel, isn't it? To transform something that's scary into something that just humbly serves you. And that leads us to our third biblical truth. Death serves us by serving up an education. Our mortality is a teacher. The psalmist sees this very point, and he says it in Psalm 90, verse 12. After contemplating his mortality, he says, so teach us to number our days. Teach us. Let us learn to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You want wisdom? You want to be biblically wise? This is the path, numbering your days. That means recognizing our mortality, remembering our death. That's what it means. According to Scripture, death awareness is not meant to depress you. It's not meant to distract you from living your life. It's actually quite the opposite. Death awareness, numbering your days, it's actually meant to focus your attention. It's meant to sharpen your priorities. It's meant to make you wise in the ways that you spend your days. 
The biblically wise person doesn't ignore the evidence of his mortality, but learns from it, gains knowledge from it. The biblically wise person prays along with the psalmist, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. We are praying for this knowledge. We want this knowledge Not to gain mastery over life, but to gain proper perspective, to gain appreciation for the life we've been given. So what do we learn from numbering our days, from contemplating our mortality? What are some lessons to be learned? Well, just look with me at Psalm 39, and we see three lessons learned when you contemplate your mortality, when you number your days. First, you learn that our lives are frail. Second, our time is fleeting. And third, Our hoarding is futile. First, by numbering our days, we learn that our lives are frail. Again, verse 4 in Psalm 39 says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Or the King James Version says, that I may know how frail I am. The biblically wise acknowledge that our bodies are slowly breaking down and coming apart. Now, I know many of you are young and healthy, and so you're not thinking like this. You're not thinking about your body breaking down. You, you know, you, you, you just, you know, you, you, you play sports, and you tackle each other playing football, and you just, you know, get, get, right, get right back up, and it, it doesn't affect you. But some of you, some of you are, are feeling the effects of age. And I, I feel you. I, I, I know how you feel, how it's not sports that is giving us injuries anymore. It's just sleeping wrong in the wrong position, right? And you, you, just have, you wish you had a better story for your injury, but no, you just, you just slept. That's, that's, that's what aging does. And so we know what it means to be frail. And that's why, of course, it's so good for us to be in a community of faith where it's not just all young people. Where, it's just, where it spans different generations so that the young may learn from the wisdom of our elders, may learn from those who are experiencing the aging process in a more tangible way. The biblically wise are those who neither deny nor despise the fact that they're aging. They don't idolize youth. They, they don't pretend to be younger than they really are, just ashamed of their age. No, the wise appreciate the goodness of their givenness, and they recognize that aging is part of the human experience in this present age. The wise see their gray hair as a crown of glory, according to Proverbs 16, verse 31. The biblically wise are those who have put their hope in Christ Jesus, the one who has defeated death. And they are the ones who have hope beyond the grave. They believe that they will rise again. And that, gospel, and that very gospel hope reorients the way that the wise perceive and process the natural signs of aging. Listen to how Sam Albury describes this new perspective that we can have on aging. Quote, signs of aging are no, are no longer a threat. But a promise. Gray hair and deepening lines on my face don't need to speak to me of a past I can't recover, 
but of a future I can barely conceive. The real glory days are not behind, but ahead. The biblically wise see this. They have learned to number their days. They know that for those in Christ, death is not a final destination. It is a door to a better world. Death is not a wall. It's a window that we go through. It's not the end of the story. No, it's the start of a new and better one. And if that is true, my friends, then all the signs of aging should be viewed as signs and pointers of that future coming day, of our coming resurrection in glory. So by contemplating our mortality, we learn, first of all, that our lives are frail. Second, we learn that our time is fleeting. Life is a vapor, James says. It's a mere breath. Listen to Psalm 39, verse 5. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Now, a handbreadth was one of the smallest units of measurement in ancient Israel. It was essentially the, the, the measure of the width of your hand. So this, these kind of four fingers right here, that's a handbreadth. And the psalmist is just saying that the length of his lifetime is, is a handbreadth. It's so short, it's so small. It, it's like nothing compared to the eternality of God. Our life is a blip. It's like a raindrop in the Pacific, a grain of sand in the Sahara. It is a mere breath that quickly vanishes. The same emphasis on the brevity of life is made also in Psalm 90, verse 10. There it says, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Now, in ancient days, living into your, nine, into your 80s, that, that would, have, would have been considered quite a feat. But compared to the eternal God who exists from everlasting to everlasting, well, 80 years is nothing. Again, it's like a mere breath. The point is that when you know your time is fleeting, your vision actually gets sharper. Your priorities get clearer. And you're finally motivated to focus on the things in life that really matter. I mean, let's just consider a hypothetical scenario. Just imagine you go to your doctor and he gives you a bleak prognosis. You've got three months to live. That's it. Three months. Now, knowing that, how is that going to change you? What activities, what pursuits that dominate so much of your time and attention right now Will you now lay aside in order to focus on something more important? What are you going to now spend the bulk of your remaining time on? Who are you going to spend it with? I assume that all of us would make some significant changes in our lives if we found ourselves in that kind of a situation. I can't imagine that any of us would say, oh, I'm just going to do exactly the same thing I've been doing. No, I'm sure all of us would change. But of course, this whole idea of numbering your days is that wisdom, biblical wisdom, would compel you to make those same changes right now, even without being given a bleak prognosis. The biblically wise know that their days are but a few handbreadths, and so they're going to begin living in light of eternity right now. 
And what would that look like practically? Well, that leads to another lesson that can be derived from numbering your days. Third, we learn that our hoarding is futile. In other words, building up a nest egg, laying up treasures on earth, is a fool's errand. Listen to Psalm 39, verse 6. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. The NIV puts it this way. In vain they rush about heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. I mean, just think of Jesus' parable of the rich fool found in Luke chapter 12. It's also about the brevity and uncertainty of life. It's about this rich man who has more wealth than he knows even what to do with. But instead of being generous with all of that, instead of blessing others with his wealth, he stores it all up for himself. He hoards his riches. And he's under this assumption that he has ample goods laid up for himself for many years to come. So he thought he could just sit back, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? His big plans were cut short by an untimely death. And friends, that parable is just trying to convey the same message as this psalm. The number of our days on earth are a given They are fixed, and there is nothing that we can do to increase that number. The biblical fool is the one who ignores this reality and acts as if his days have no end. But the biblically wise will learn to number those days and to live to like they're going to live forever, not in this life, but in the kingdom that is still to come. Not laying up treasures for themselves here, but being rich towards God. The wise know that they will one day go into the ground and their riches won't follow them. But at the same time, the wise put their hope in the gospel promise that they will one day rise to new life on a new earth when God's kingdom comes. And just as some Puritan gravestones were marked with those words, memento mori, others carry the inscription, resurgum. Resurgum, meaning in Latin, I shall rise again. Just as we ought to remember our death, to acknowledge our mortality, those who follow a resurrected Redeemer can thumb our noses at death and defiantly say, Resurgum, I shall rise again. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel that though death comes for us all, death does not need to be the end for those who are in Christ Jesus. So open up our eyes to see the beauty, the truth, and the goodness of Christ and his gospel. Give us faith to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.